Well, good morning again. Good to see you all. Um, I always find it fascinating when we look into what we call the letters. Uh, and most of the New Testament is mail, it's letters, it's correspondence. Uh, and these letters were written not with any indication that you and I would be reading them today. I always find that fascinating. Um, when Paul was writing letters to his friends like Timothy and so on, he wasn't thinking, I hope this makes the book. You know, There was no idea that that would even be a thing. Um, but the recipients of these letters held on to them and they became very, very sacred uh, texts over time. And two letters that Paul wrote uh, that we're going to be sitting in and with for the next really seven Sundays are these letters that, that are addressed to uh, his friend and his protege named uh, Timothy. And Timothy is a younger person than Paul and Timothy is... Um, uh, again, the receiver of these two letters from Paul. The only reason Paul writes you is because there's an issue. There are issues, maybe. There are multiple things that he wants to address uh, and to speak into and to encourage and so on. And so, again, for the next uh, seven Sundays, we're going to be in First and Second Timothy and just listen to what Paul is speaking and saying to Timothy, but also by proxy, you and me, as we sit here and listen. Uh, these are known as the pastorals. The epistles, the pastoral epistles, because they are very personal and they're very helpful in tone. Now, before I read our text uh, for today, let me just give a little bit of background so it makes sense as you're listening to it. Again, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a protege. He is a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and Ephesus was once a beautiful uh, city, now a touristy sort of space or uh, place on the planet where people go and take pictures and look at old ruins. But Ephesus in its day was a very well-known uh, city of art, of young uh, creatives, of all kinds of religious freedom and ideas and uh, interesting city. But Timothy, uh, Paul has gotten word anyway that Timothy, uh, within the church that he pastors, he's under great a great deal of stress, and it's impacting his health. There's even a section in uh, the Timothy letters where Paul tells uh, Timothy, hey, listen, uh, maybe have some wine at the end of each day, you know, because it was, there was something going on uh, that was causing Timothy to, uh, it, it, was, it was impacting his physical and his emotional health. And besides being a timid and ancient person, Timothy's troubles are from the inside, they are people under his, they're coming from people under his care as a pastor. And they're wreaking havoc on his physical and emotional health. Now, before we go any further, this isn't about you. Uh, this isn't about the church. In fact, we're going we're gonna to extract ourselves from the church setting and just talk about life in general. But I think it's important that you know uh, what Paul's uh, speaking into. So Paul basically writes to encourage uh, Timothy. And a letter like this, even though it was written uh, to a particular person, Timothy, about very specific things. In Timothy's case, church-related leadership troubles in first century Ephesus, we can all relate. Uh, when we step back and listen to it with a larger ear, uh, we can hear some really, really helpful things. And so I want to read the first part of uh, chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. This is our reading for today. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he closes with this kind of doxology saying, To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll get into this just for a few minutes. God, thank you again for this morning and the songs that we've been able to sing as a congregation and the words of mercy and uh, that we are engaging with today, um, both through singing, the readings, and our, uh, our section here from Paul's letter to your servant, Timothy. So speak to us, uh, words of encouragement, and if there are things that we need to hear and be reminded of, that we would hear those today. And it's in your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Now, letters in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they followed a very particular pattern. Um, if you put this letter next to any letter that we have from the ancient uh, Greco-Roman writings, they look, they look the same. Uh, and this part of the letter is very typical. It's called the Thanksgiving piece of the letter. So there's usually like, there's some name dropping at the top, there's an address E, and then there's this Thanksgiving slash prayer section of the letter. And this is what we have just read, where Paul seems to be thanking Timothy or thanking God, but he's also, it also comes to us in like a tone of, of prayer. And in it, Paul focuses on the mercy of God. Say the word mercy. You got to get used to that word. It's a, it's a needed word in our world. Uh, but for Paul, the mercy of God is very, very personal uh, to him. You may have caught some of this just in, in the little section that I read, but if you don't know much about Paul, um, we actually know a lot about Paul historically, and Paul was not always a Christian. Uh, Paul was late to the game, early to the game in the timeline of history, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus when Jesus was around. He was not always a Christian, and he was first an intentional, purposeful enemy of the movement of Jesus. This is how Paul defines Himself. When the movement of Jesus was picking up steam, Paul took it upon himself to oppose that, to become a self-proclaimed enemy of that. He was a Pharisee himself, and a Pharisee, as we have talked about in here multiple times, is a, really the group of scholars within the Jewish tradition in that time period. They would give way to what we now call the rabbis. But in the day, Paul was a Pharisee, which meant don't debate him on scripture, just don't. Don't at him on your account, like he's going to take you down. So a Pharisee himself, he carried around intellectual reasons to object to Jesus. Not just emotional reasons, not just traditional reasons, but intellectual and theological reasons to object to the Jesus movement. And he became, again, by his own admission, a persecutor of the movement. But Paul ends up in the middle of this very dramatic and I would say almost violent conversion to the way of Jesus. We don't have time to get into that full story. He himself retells it multiple times uh, throughout the New Testament. But it's a dramatic conversion to the way of Jesus. And what's interesting about his conversion experience is that Jesus does not condemn him, but rather invites him in. He calls him in to the movement. And so Paul, as a response, dedicated the rest of his life 
and hear this clearly, the rest of his life to pay back the debt for the gift of mercy he felt he never deserved. And here in the front of this letter to a struggling Timothy, he talks about mercy and he holds it out as an example and an inspiration of how we are to live our lives as people of mercy. And I want to just look at a couple things that Paul says here about the mercy of God. The first is from verse 15. And I'll just read it again. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the what? Foremost. So that little middle section, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is apparently a saying that's going around. And Paul is calling it out and saying, that saying that people keep saying is true. It's worthy of full acceptance. But then he adds himself to the, to the saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the best sinner. <laughs> Martin Luther's famous for saying, if you're going to sin, then sin boldly. Amen. Some of you are like, I got that. I know how to do that. Of whom I am the foremost. Now, a couple of things about this. Uh, mercy is something that works in the lives of those who feel they don't deserve it. If you feel that you deserve mercy, mercy has a hard time getting a seat at that table. But mercy is something that works best in the lives of those who feel they don't deserve it. And mercy is best understood when you and I see our need for it. Don't check out on me here. This is very important. Mercy is best understood when we see our need for it. Paul's very mindful here. He's aware of the need. He's saying if, if there's a ranking of people who sin, I'm in the lead pack. And mercy, I would say, makes almost no sense to those who don't see the holes in their own life. Mercy makes no sense to those who feel no need for it. And so the first thing Paul hits at here is it's very, very important in order to understand and receive and to give mercy to first understand our need for it. He goes on in verse 16 to say, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, I guess this is now his title, he has a big F on his shirt, super F, the foremost, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect what? Patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is where if you are a Christian, you come into the picture here. That Paul is holding himself up as a story, as an example of how the patience of Jesus, the patience of God is displayed towards Paul in the act of mercy as an example for us. Paul's not the example for us per se, but the mercy, the way God doles out mercy is the example for us. Paul is just a part of that equation. And so he's saying, this is the reason. He firmly believed this. Paul was very, oh, this is, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, and this is why this is happening. 
You may be that way, you may not be that way, but Paul was very a connect-the-dots kind of spiritually-minded person, that God is always working behind and in front and through all the scenes of our lives. And so Paul sees his own conversion, his own experience with God, God's mercy as a purposeful thing on the part of Jesus that he might become an example of how mercy works. And the key word in this is this word patience, this long-suffering, God seems to operate on a very different timeline than we typically operate with people who annoy us. There's a long-suffering and a patience uh, with God. That the mercy of God is an act of patience. And patience is something that understands that people have these blind spots Paul iterates this in verse 13, just before this. He says, but I received mercy because I acted what? Ignorantly in unbelief. Now this is where we're going to sit for a minute, so don't, don't let me lose you. Paul says, there's a level of ignorance in me. And unbelief here is not necessarily uh, just blanket, I don't believe things. It's He's talking about his very ardent belief that he was right. And that in that ardent belief that he was right, there was an ignorance in there, which he now equates with unbelief. It's this wonderful turn that's like, what I thought was belief is really unbelief. There's an ignorance in there, an unknowing that I wasn't aware of. And because of that, God is merciful. And again, it's an example for us that there are people in our lives that when they do things or say things that harm us, there's probably and most certainly a level of unknowing and ignorance in their actions. And God is aware, Paul is saying, he's aware of my blind spots. And mercy comes to us as an example of that, as a practice in our lives. So in Paul's own reflection on the mercy of God, he holds it out as a practice for the people of Jesus, something to employ in our relationships and in our world. Now, a couple of things here that you may be thinking. Mercy is not to be confused with blind forgiveness. And if you have children, just letting them run the house. That's not mercy. That's bad parenting. Mercy is not to be confused with, I guess I'll just sit here in this toxic relationship. That's not mercy. That's weakness. Get out. Mercy is not to be confused with, I feel repressed or even abused. I'll just let it happen. That's not what this is about. Mercy is not to be confused with just blind and blanket forgiveness. Mercy is more complicated than that. It's more intellectual than that. Mercy is very aware and engaged with whatever the wrongdoing is, whatever the sin is, whatever the act that has caused harm is. Mercy is hyper aware of that. It sees it. It names it. Mercy is not possible without naming what has been done wrong. But mercy looks for something else. And I've said this already before, but again, it looks for these blind spots, the areas and levels of ignorance in the behavior of the person who is committing the wrongdoing. Now, I know that in your head, you're picturing all these people in your life, but it's also you, and it's also me. 
Make sense? We have several uh, PhDs in behavioral science in our church family, which I find fascinating, and that they're still believers. It's amazing to me. And one of them told me years ago, 10 years ago, we were having this discussion about what they do, and then somehow that led to people's behavior. And then one of them said to me these words, everyone sees their own behavior as normal. Now again, that's you, and that's me. Everyone sees their own behavior as completely normal. You're the one who's crazy. It's true, isn't it? Ever look around and wonder why everyone else is so strange, so uninformed, so wrong? Aren't we the only ones who truly know how to drive? Are you with me on this? Aren't all the fans of the other college football teams the worst? Now, I'm a college football fan, and I know that the the team I cheer for is bad. Not the team. The team is fantastic. But the fans are bad. But I just love hearing fans from other schools tell me how bad our fans are. And I'm like, weren't yours arrested? Like, I don't, like, I don't see. Everybody else has the worst fans, the most ill-behaved fans, the most uncouth set of fans. We all live and behave from a certain level of ignorance to our own blind spots. You know, it's never too early to have a presidential debate, apparently. And I've been watching these, not with any sense of anger or frustration, but just amazement. And it's interesting to me, and I don't think it's particular to just this round. I think it's always been this way. But inconsistencies and failures and corruption is everybody else's problem. Have you noticed that? Watch the next round and just see how many people go, okay, I'm really bad at this part of my job. You know? Like when the mayor of Chicago years ago was like, we will never allow a Chick-fil-A in our city limits. I'm like, but you will allow the worst level of gun violence. That's fine. We'll eat chicken somewhere else. And back to the presidential debates, it's always, it's it's funny to me how each candidate, I'm not trying to get political, I know you're going to decide who I'm voting on, but it's too early. Um, My candidate hasn't arrived yet, (laughs) but (laughs) John Stewart hasn't thrown his name in yet. Um, (laughs) Please don't email me about that. I recognize that that is humor, okay? Okay. but you know, each candidate's from its own, their own city and state, of course, and there's always this like, well, in my city, we enacted this, this, and this, and this. And it's interesting how there's a level of like, well, my city is more moral than your city. And you can see that from my policies and so forth. So everybody's inconsistencies and corruptions and failures, that's everybody else, not me. You know, Now, I'm not saying that's ever going to change because this is earth. No presidential candidate's ever going to be honest. But if we just bring it down to you and me, we're the same way. 
Everybody else drives badly. Everybody else is too angry. Everybody else is not a good worker. Everybody else is a bad parent. Everybody else is wrong, except for me. We struggle with that too, amen? And even in our moments, this is what's key, even in our moments of very intentional, and this is what Paul's getting at, in our moments of very intentional and purposeful anger and lashing out or even hatred, there remains present a level of certainty that we are 100% right. And in our culture of calling out and shaming and canceling, mercy stands in our midst as a very different and more complicated way of doing life, a more mindful approach to the ills of this world. Now, a few applications for you and me. Just want to throw myself in the, the ring. I, I was thinking about this and putting this together, like what is the application to, to learning about mercy? I think a few things. I think if we could all leave the room today aware of our own personal need for mercy, that would be a big step forward. Now let me warn you because I've practiced this before in my own life, like being mindful of my own need for mercy. You'll be much more quiet this week than most weeks. That's just a warning. If you leave today and say, my goal is to even end my evening tonight, sitting and reflecting and examining my own life for the areas where I need mercy, your Monday at bare minimum will be very quiet. We have to see it first in ourselves. So it is an examination of the self. This is why the monks are very quiet. Because they spend way more time than we do thinking quite honestly about themselves. I used to think the vow of silence was ridiculous. Why would you take that? And then I tried this. I'm like, I know why. Because every time, I don't know if it's you, but every time I open my mouth, something offensive comes out. <laughs> it's very hard for me to preach. <laughs> stick to the notes, stick to the notes. Don't cuss. So that, that is the question. Like, where are my personal blind spots? Another question related to that might simply be, if my lack of mercy towards others, is it a cover for my own unwillingness to see the need for mercy in my own life? Let me give you the free counselor answer. Yes. Yes. If I don't see it in me first, and this is so key, we're not even to the point where how do we give mercy? You can't give it until you see it first in you and I see it first in me. If I don't see it in me, I won't see it in others. I find that I'm most compassionate when I've gone through a struggle with sin, be it anger or whatever. I find that when I am most compassionate in the wake of going through that, most compassionate in the wake of dealing with that myself. 
but we must see it in us, the need for mercy before we'll ever see it in other people. Mercy is possible because in our relationships, it's, it's possible in our relationships and we're most aware of our own need for it in our personal lives. I love what Tolkien says, uh, everything he says. But this actually comes from the Lord of the Rings, but he says, many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too angry to deal out death in judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all the ends. Our own vision is skewed by our own perceptions of ourselves. And so it's important. I will... If I, if I don't see it first in me, then I will convince myself of my own personal perfection. And I will never see anything other than failure in the lives of those around me. So the question for you and for me is, who is someone in your life that you can see through the eyes of mercy this week? Again, not blanket forgiveness, not blind forgiveness, but it's, it's simply the mindful question of, could it be, that the reason they act and behave the way they do is because they think that's normal? Could it be that they're, non, that they're unaware that what they're doing is causing harm? I've been married since 1995. Uh, and if you've been married that long, you sit through counsel. You let people speak into that. The counselors would always say, like, it's very, very important for you as a spouse to look at your spouse and say, when you say that, in that way, this is what it sounds like to me. And nine out of 10 times, if they're not too stubborn, the spouse will go, I had no idea. It was just normal. I just thought you would understand what I was thinking silently. I thought you were a mind reader. So the, the question is more mindful. Could it be that mercy is deserved because there is a level of ignorance in behavior. Mercy is not easy. For many of us, it's not easy to receive. We don't think we deserve it. For all of us, it's very difficult to give. Mercy is hard. It's easier to judge. It's easier to point out the faults in other people. Personally detached criticism gets way more likes and traffic than the quiet pursuit of mercy. Learning the way of mercy is actually a thing. From Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, not to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus, thank you, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. And he quotes an Old Testament prophet. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy. Not the lives that you live that appear like you are right, that you are making all the right sacrifices, that you are living well, that you are perfect. I don't require that. I don't even desire that, God is saying. What I desire is mercy. 
Now, we haven't even gotten into the Timothy letter, but we will. And Timothy is having problems with people. And I love that before Paul even speaks into Timothy's crappy situation, he speaks first of mercy. Because if we lose sight of mercy, how it's given and how it's received, all the people problems in our lives will never go away. And so as we say each week, in some form, church is simply practice. This is the place we practice this. Even if it's just for this hour of the week, we are a merciful people. And maybe if we are lucky, what we practice in here will begin to leak into our relationships, our places of work, and all the areas of our lives. So let us be the kind of place that is marked by mercy, which is an understanding of imperfection at a godly level. Amen.